0: Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 311, Cushioned by Principles. In this first of three segments on the mystery of the cross, Steve helps us move beyond the crucifixion as just a concept and into a full experience of Christ on the cross.
1: Tonight, um, I want to talk about the mystery uh, of the cross. And it's, uh, I of course knew this topic was coming, we won't cover it all tonight, we'll never cover it all if we had eternity, but we won't even attempt to cover it all tonight, I'm not sure whether we'll go, probably three weeks. And um, you know, one of the things I just wanted to point out that <clears throat> I, I do quite a lot of travel, and if I ever get some free time and I'm in the... Uh, in, in the heart of cities. I love to go to cathedrals, especially the older ones, but I love going to Catholic and Orthodox cathedrals. I love going any place where there is centuries of worshiping and adoration of Christ and the, the presence of the Lord. And I just, I just really, really enjoy it. Um, I, one of the things I like to do in the in the Roman Catholic churches is many of them, have got what are called the Stations of the Cross, which actually originated with St. Francis of Assisi. But um, uh, my favorite cathedral in our part of the world, New Mexico is up in Santa Fe, uh, St. Francis Cathedral. Um, beautiful paintings uh, on the Stations of the Cross. But there is uh, in the cathedral a powerful, powerful, statue, sculpture um, of Christ on the cross. And every time I go, I just sit for a little while and look at it and contemplate it. It's, uh, it's very, very powerful. And something happened a couple of weeks ago. I was sharing at dinner with friends. I was at a cathedral in Bogota. that We had to take a cable car. It was way up, over 10,000 feet. And after we went through the cathedral, we all split up in different places. And I had a, maybe an hour, it turned out on my own. And I started walking through a beautiful garden. And here they had the Stations of the Cross as statues. Um, and I was enjoying them all. And then I got to one that absolutely rocked me. Um, I actually felt my stomach flip. It was uh, depicting the, the moment when uh, two soldiers were, um, well, one was driving the spikes into Christ's hand, one of his hands his right hand, and the other was holding his legs down. And, and it just hit me really, really hard. I knew I was going to be teaching uh, on the mystery of the cross, But I stood there and I am so thankful to the Lord for the timing of this that before even I began to prepare this, I had that experience that so deeply, deeply rocked me. Uh, My journey into the mystery of Christ over the past uh, years has taken me more and more into uh, studying and meditating and contemplating on the cross. Um, and for me, it is not just uh, a theological concept. And my training um, and my teaching on the cross tended to be very much about the theology of the cross. And that certainly is a part of what we want to touch on. But it's become something much more visceral. And, um, you know, when I stood in front of that statue, uh, I don't tear up easily, but I, I was quite teary. It was just so real. And uh, so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to enter into this great mystery of Christ on the cross. And what I've been asking the Lord for over these last few days is that he would give us grace to, uh, to take us experientially into what happened, Um, and what is, by the way, continuing to happen, and will continue to happen uh, throughout all of eternity. And I'll unwrap that a little bit tonight and and more next week. For years I've read theology, um, and most of it, my early days, certainly the first 20 years would be from a reform point of view. But it approached the cross from a almost like a propositional truth point of view. Here are the principles. This is how it was met. We're going to talk next week about a judicial versus relational view of the cross. But but that's very much where I came from, and in fact, almost all my friends did. I would say all my friends did. I didn't realize there was any other way to see or experience the cross, and so as a result without realizing it, I, I held the crucifixion at kind of a safe distance. It was, it was cushioned by principles and, and theories and so forth. Um, and so for me the crucifixion was more conceptual than experiential. One of the things I've been coming to terms with I've been thinking a lot about it the last few weeks. Is my sanitized view of the cross. And this again ties in with more of a conceptual. uh, Point of view on the crucifixion. But my sanitized view. It's even hard for me to say what I'm about to say. Um, Artists. Sculptors. Present even in the midst of the agony it is somewhat sanitized because it's too raw Um, It's so hard for me to embrace a naked God on the cross uh, Whose body is suffering the literal effects of the crucifixion Um, If you look closely in the accounts you'll see they stood at a distance some historians say that people stood at a distance simply because a naked, beaten, bleeding man who progressively lost control of all his bodily functions was just too horrifying. In one sense too disgusting. No wonder the cross was a scandal which is what Paul kept approaching. It's been said that if we are not horrified And indeed, disgusted by the cross, we've not yet begun to understand it. And this is part of the journey that I'm on right now, and have been for a while. So this week, which I guess is part one of, I'm not sure yet, two or three weeks, but this week, primarily, I want to focus on the cross as it relates to the incarnation. I want to focus on what was happening to Jesus at the cross next week we'll look at what was accomplished at the cross this is going to take us into a discussion of uh, how the church has understood this over the past two thousand years and it's going to lead us into two very different views of what was happening on the cross so that's where we're going to go next week today it is more the the actual presence of christ on the cross and 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 what that means for us i'll start with paul who is fascinating to me that uh again and again we see him as he's as he's uh addressing these churches that he's planted he goes back and back and back to the cross to the crucifixion um it was central to his teaching it was central to what he preached, whether it was to Jews or Gentiles. It was central to his life. Um, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me, who lives in me. So here's just a few scriptures that we know, but examples. Um, Paul said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. He said, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. That's 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. In Galatians 6.14, Paul said, may I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Back to 1 Corinthians again, one eighteen. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's interesting that Paul wrote of the cross to the Corinthian church more than any other church. Um, That last verse I just gave you, 118. The message of the cross carries the very power of God in that message. And and that's why Paul insisted this is the heart of the gospel. Uh, This is the central message Christ and him crucified. So I I want us to consider a little bit. We don't have time to go down a long road with the Corinthian church. But they were a church that was... uh, known for being rather sensual they were a church that was known for being uh, very much about charismatic experience um, and here's the interesting connection Paul addresses the Corinthians who either placed himself kind of beyond the cross like oh yeah we, get, we figured that one out and we've moved on now which by the way I think is very common in the church um, and also, he he speaks to them. Uh, they've gone beyond the cross. They already raised. Uh, although uh, they lived as if they were already raised from the dead, they lived with this super spiritual. They were a funny mix. There was a lot of Gnosticism because there was this sensualism. But but in their in their personal theology, it, there was there was this higher knowledge, this we have arrived. You see that as you look closely, it is two letters. There was something super spiritual, and and it was like they were now, they'd left it behind, and it's almost like they were above the cross. Um, that, that suffering was beneath them. They're all about the, the experiences, the revelations, the, and so forth. I have to say that we need to be very careful uh, as Western evangelicals, especially in the charismatic tradition, that we can, we can uh, not really embrace the cross at all, move through it very quickly. Um, Paul kept focusing them on living in the cross. That's what he was saying. No, the cross is central. It's not something that's 101 and you've moved past it now. It's not something that, oh, now we're above that and we you don't have to suffer anymore. He's saying, no, we live in the reality and the tension of the cross. The cross is all about this dynamic tension. It is filled with paradox. Only by embracing the reality of suffering and sacrifice can we can we live in the cross, which I'm going to unwrap in a minute. Can we live in true, substantial love? So let me make five or six main points about the cross tonight and lord keep us from theology and principles because this is deeply deeply experiential god is most fully revealed in the crucifixion and the resurrection I, my friends kenneth and margaret have listened to me teach that for years that that his it is where he is most fully revealed And the shocking claim of the cross is that God is fully acting in Jesus' death on the cross. The cross is a profoundly Trinitarian event. We will talk in a coming week, I'm not sure which one, about the mystery of Christ and the Trinity. But the cross is a Trinitarian event. Without the Trinity, the cross does not make sense. And I'm going to unwrap that next week. God is the triune God. If Jesus is not the second person of the Trinity, if Jesus laid aside his divinity, then God is not directly involved at the cross Therefore, Jesus is detached from God's eternal plan. We've got to see the cross as being about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, let's talk about the cross as the, the great cosmic event. Some of you have heard me share a theme again and again and again, that the scriptures are not two-dimensional as in our era we so often see them. They're three-dimensional. That if we don't understand the the layers of truth that are sometimes found in metaphor, but the layers of truth, if we don't understand, then we're missing the the essence. And we see everything as just black and white, or we see it as an event that happened once in history. And I've taught you before, Jesus profoundly, in fact, we started this series, Jesus lives and has always lived outside of time and space. And so we can't think of an event as it just, it happened, now it's over. Well, we can, but we're impoverished if we do. The cross is God's great reclamation project. And I would say that the cross is greater than the original creation itself. Because the cross is the re-creation of all things. It exists in time. Of course it does. The the cross is like the dividing line of history, isn't it? But it it is also the eternal power of all things. The eternal, timeless power. Of all things in the cosmos 21st century evangelicalism emphasizes individual spiritual experiences it, indivi- it it stresses personal piety the gospel is about you go to heaven I wrote a thing last week in Facebook about uh, a personal evacuation plan that's not the gospel and uh, and I think that, that this small view of the gospel, which does not embrace the cross fully, I think that gives us not only a shallow faith, but I think it has led to, uh, for example, uh, the church is, is statistically less interested and less involved in human struggle in North America. Did you know that? That, that Christians are less likely to help the poor than non-Christians. I was shocked when I came across that last year. I was doing a bunch of research. Um, It's it's what it is. It's not bad Christians. It's It's a small personal piety. Gospel. I believe this goes back in part, all of this goes back to an inadequate understanding, an inadequate contemplation of the cross. I think as we move too quickly to the victory of the resurrection without deeply embracing the staggering reality of God being tortured on the cross that leads us right into personal piety leads us into triumphalism leads us into an easy gospel suffering and love are the great transformers in society and in us When there's no suffering, I think there's limited love. I really do. And with limited love, there's always limited transformation. Romans 8, 29. We're being conformed or transformed into the image of His Son. The root is always, I said this a couple of sessions ago, the root is always marked by suffering and love. If we do not deeply and I believe experientially, viscerally engage in the cross and the crucifixion, the result is a shallow faith. And as I said, it leads us into disengagement with our world rather than engagement. The cross is about restoration, but because of the magnitude and the power of sin and evil, God's act of restoration was infinitely costly. And there's a mystery to this thing that I can't put fully into words. But it is not just a cost that was paid 2,000 years ago. There's something built into the cosmos that it is being paid continuously. In one sense, there is a sense it was once and for all. Hebrews is very clear on that, Hebrews 9 especially. But there's this other sense in which what happens, and I'm going to try to unwrap that in a couple of minutes, what happens is so cosmic at the cross that continues to affect the cosmos.
0: This week's episode is brought to you by our upcoming Journey of Compassion to Colombia. As I record this, we've got a team of about 25 people that are just beginning their journey of compassion in Northern India. And yesterday we received a report about their first day of ministry, and it sounds like they are off to a great start. The team that was distributing water filters entered their first home of the day, where they provided a family with a filter that will supply clean, safe drinking water for at least the next 10 years. And then they asked them that marvelous question, can we pray for you? Wouldn't you know it? Six people were healed, and the entire household of seven people gave their lives to Christ. And that was just in one home. Isn't that good news? Now the reality is that there's a family in Bogota, Colombia that's also waiting for an encounter with the living God, and they don't even know it yet. Will you be the one to bring them the good news of Jesus? Imagine if you and your family were to go together to heal the sick, meet the needs of the poor, and invite people into a life in Christ. I mention your family because this journey is uniquely designed for you and your children to do ministry together. This is our least expensive journey already, but we've also introduced a special family rate so that you can all go together. If you're anything like me, you're probably longing to see your children come alive in Christ as they learn what it means to go and make disciples. So come join us July 1st to 10th. If you'd like to learn more about this amazing opportunity, visit impactnations.com Columbia, or call us at 1-877-736-0803. And now back to the podcast.
1: the next point about the cross i want to just give you come back down to earth a little bit and give you the historical context for the cross Um, we we seek to understand the cross better so that god's power and wisdom can work in us and through us and out into the world don't forget paul called the cross the wisdom of christ so we want that wisdom to be working and um, It's interesting, we're going to talk a little bit about atonement and atonement theories next week, which is really about, you know, what was happening with... uh uh, with sin and, and the payment for sin etc but it's really interesting that the early church had no interest in that the, the, the early creeds the apostles creed the Athanasian creed the Nicene creed which we're going to say together tonight uh, they simply say that Jesus suffered and died doesn't say anything about what we call atonement theory so in the context of he simply suffered and died, here is here's the context for the crucifixion, the literal context. Rome, of course, uh, for um, well, closing in on 200 years, was an occupier nation. They were an empire. There's a phrase you've probably heard, Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was incredibly valued the Roman peace, but it was upheld by fear and force and fear of punishment. The governor's job, and we know Pilate is the character in this story, the governor's job was primarily to keep the peace, to maintain stability, and that's how he kept out of trouble with Rome, with head office. That was what he was supposed to do. So you've got that happening. At the same time, the Jewish leaders, you know, on the one hand, they had great resentment toward Rome, this occupying nation. But on the other, the religious structure, the Jewish leaders sought to curry favor with political power. Something we have to be very careful about nowadays. They were hoping for a Messiah, yes, but their dominant reality was to get the best they could out of this situation. They recognized that Jesus was a threat to the temple system. Uh, Many, many commentators say the turning point, the point at which he he crossed the Rubicon, was in the synoptics uh, in the last week of his life when he overturned the tables and... Throughout the money changers. So the religious people knew where Pilate was coming from, stability. And so they presented Jesus to Pilate as a threat to the Roman system. We have no king but Caesar. Remember that? So there's what. N.T. Wright, in simply Jesus, calls a perfect storm. These two huge forces come together and Jesus is caught right in the middle of it. And, uh, and so this is the atmosphere in which the crucifixion takes place. Uh, it's, a, it's a powder keg. So that's just to give you some practical background there. Let's talk about the cross and the incarnation. We've spent a couple of weeks earlier, any of you who are new to this series, you can uh, get it on our podcast, the Impact Nations podcast, um, from our website or uh, iTunes or however you want to do it. And you'll see that we talked about the Incarnation for a couple of weeks, and I'm not going to take time to go back into all the significance of the Incarnation, but if we have a proper understanding of the Incarnation Of God and man fully together in Christ of God entering human history it must take us to the cross the cross is the pinnacle of understanding on the incarnation because you have him fully God which we're going to talk about but suffering fully human suffering so without this without this incarnational understanding which includes human, profound human suffering, we always slip into triumphalism. I've talked to you before about Constantine and what's called Constantinianism, which is, which is the, the marriage of the, the religious system and the political system for triumph, for success. You can be a success, you can have it all, you can whatever. That comes very much, as I hope we're gonna see tonight, from not having a deep understanding, experiential understanding of the cross. So the incarnation of the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14, the classic incarnational scripture, it's completed at the cross. So let's talk about the cross in the context of that incarnation. I've thrown a word out to you several times hypostasis, big word what it means is Jesus was 100% man human and 100% God when Christ is called the image of the invisible God, which for example in Hebrews 1.3 he is um, it means that On the cross, this is God. And this is exactly what God is like. God is exactly like this on the cross. God is not greater, more glorious than he is in this humiliation and self-surrender. He is not more powerful than he is in this helplessness. There's a marvelous book, and I meant to make a list and I forgot, but one of them is uh, The Crucified God, if anybody wants to read a a pretty long book, but it's great, by a guy named Moltmann, M-O-L-T-M-A-N-N, and uh, I'm quoting Moltmann there. He is not more powerful than he is in this helplessness. Isn't that interesting? He goes on to say, at his lowest point, his deepest humiliation at the cross, he is fully the eternal God. Surely this must be a mystery. When God participates in our human trauma and pain, he participates as the lamb, not the lion. It is not that Christ, and this is important for us, it is not that Christ has suffered instead of us, which is, I think, uh, one of the weaknesses of one of the atonement theories. The part of the weakness in that substitutional thing is, oh, it all went to him, so it didn't have to go to us. So I'm going to say that again. It is not that Christ has suffered instead of us. Rather, he has suffered on our behalf. Let me explain that. Christ did not suffer so that we might be exempt. Rather, that our suffering may be like his. The crucified Christ does not offer us a way around suffering, but a way through it. Uh, A favorite verse of mine is in the Psalms 7719. His path goes right through the midst of the turbulent waters. I do not believe a gospel that says he is. He does it instead so we don't have to suffer. I do not believe that's the gospel. Uh, Philippians 3.10, that I meet, might know him and the fellowship of his suffering. So let's talk for a few minutes about suffering, because how can we talk about the cross without talking about suffering? Yes, at the cross, there was physical, physical suffering. And it, you know, I, I started off by telling you about seeing that, um, that sculpture. I, I, I confess to you that I've had a sanitized version, because it's like emotionally I couldn't come to terms with Christ, with God, the second person in that state I described on the cross. It was a terrible, terrible physical suffering. We've all heard messages that the cross was the worst torture known at that time, some would say ever. But I think beyond this, I want to talk about the spiritual and emotional suffering that happened right then on the cross. On the cross, Jesus identified with deep failure, deep failure. He identified with isolation and, and complete loneliness and abandonment. I talked to you guys a few weeks ago on the difference between abandonment and separation. I said separation is objective. It's, you're in two separate places. <coughs> abandonment is our response to that feeling alone. And I said, he suffered and experienced abandonment, not separation. And I'll talk about that next week. But he felt utterly abandoned, utterly alone, completely isolated. And he was was living at that moment with a deep sense of failure. Jesus entered into the experience of spiritual death. (sighs) On the cross, he identifies with all the despair... And all the emotional pain of humanity. And the famous quote from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is truly experiencing abandonment from the Father. Not separation, but abandonment. And some say that this sense of godlessness is spiritual death. The incarnation is about identification and sharing right he came to to live as a man to share life with us Um, but the cross is this act of sharing carried to its ultimate end and I do not believe and we can talk about it more next week that the cross is so much about substitution but rather he comes as a saving companion to us in our despair and our brokenness and our trauma. In both the Nicene and Apostles' Creed, all of Christ's life and ministry are summarized with one word, suffered. Isn't it interesting? You must have noticed it in the creeds. It doesn't talk about any of the healing or any of the miracles, nothing. He suffered and died. This is a vivid demonstration that for the early church, they understood that the passion was the culmination of everything that Jesus accomplished. Isn't that interesting? The passion is all that led up to and included the crucifixion. Passion week begins with Palm Sunday and all that happened there. The Garden of Gethsemane is a high point. Uh, if you want to look uh, again on the podcast, I think I covered that maybe it's two months ago now, where his, he was experiencing all these things in Gethsemane just hours before they, uh, they were walked out on the cross. In 21st century evangelicalism, I think that the gospel is way too often stripped of suffering. Way too often. And so what's the result of that? We, and I know this as a pastor for years, we live with an unspoken sense of rules. I've had people talk to me about it as recently as about 10 days ago when I was in Colombia. We have this unspoken ethos where I got to be okay. And so on Sunday, I make sure one way or another for two hours, I'm okay. I, I know it could be slightly overstating it, but I'm not so sure that I am. Because if we strip the gospel of suffering and focus just on the resurrection, it's like we bypass the crucifixion. There's a Canadian writer, Douglas Hall, and uh, he challenges the contemporary church to understand itself as the community of the cross, the community that suffers with the community that willingly bears the stigma of the passion in service to others. And here's a direct quote from him. The basic distinction between religion and Christian faith is the propensity of religion to avoid, precisely, suffering. To have light without darkness, vision without trust and risk, hope without an ongoing dialogue with despair, In short, Easter without Good Friday. That's a good quote, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Shall I read it one more time? Mm -hmm. The basic distinction between religion and Christian faith is the propensity of religion to avoid precisely suffering, to have light without darkness, vision without trust and risk, hope without an ongoing dialogue with despair, in short, Easter without Good Friday. Okay, we could talk about suffering and on and on and on. There's books on suffering, but but in terms of, of understanding the cross, we have to see that that's, it, it goes deep on this subject. Now let's look at some another aspect of the cross. I want to use a, a term coined by Brian Zond, who I like very much. He referred to... Uh, the cross as the axis of love there's a really fine uh, writer john Baer, and uh, he wrote a book called the mystery of christ it's it's, it's it's good it's not light but it's very good he said this we cannot contemplate the one who brought all things into being as distinct from the crucified and exalted one This coincidence of opposites is for St. Gregory he's one of the early church fathers fabulous by the way if you want to reach St. Gregory this coincidence of opposites is for St. Gregory quote the unsearchable riches of Christ the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things that's Ephesians 3 8 and 9 when the Apostle Paul speaks of the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. We know that from Ephesians 3, that prayer, right? <laughs> it's interesting. St. Gregory sees this as inscribing the figure of the cross into the very structure of the universe created by the God revealed through the cross. The overarching power of the eternal timeless God manifest in the passion of Christ is the same power that upholds all of creation so that the cross is indeed the still eternal or timeless axis around which the world rotates now there's a lot in there if you want I'll give it to you later because time marches on but here he's touching on this mystery. I'm, I'm starting to see my way through the fog on that. It's not just an event. It is profoundly an event that divides history. But it is more than an event. It is an ongoing. It is the creative, as I said earlier, the recreating force of God. Um, the crucified Christ now fills the universe with his cruciform love. That's a great word, by the way. You might want to remember that word, cruciform. It means in the shape of the cross, in the form of the cross. The crucified Christ now fills the universe with his cruciform love. He does not just passively, and this is so important, he does not just passively witness our pain, our anguish, our suffering, abuse, oppression, Instead, because of the cross, he enters, he enters into the suffering. He lives himself, the sorrow. He lives it for all. And he lives it with all. And he lives it for all time. The marks of suffering, of our suffering, your suffering and my suffering, are in his cruciform reality, who he is for all place and all time. Who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? The cross transcends time and space. The entire cosmos revolves around this axis axis of love. And this... Folks, if we get this, surely this must liberate us from a small gospel of personal piety. At the cross, Jesus is not just saving individuals. And that's the only gospel I ever heard. I don't know about you. He is not just saving individuals. He is recreating the world, indeed the entire cosmos. An axis has got two planes to it, doesn't it? The axis of the cross is built upon both Christ's co-suffering and self-emptying love and his radical forgiveness. Everybody still with me? Remember, I've told you, the cross is more profoundly than any other picture we have about the incarnation. It is, this is God. As Maltman says, the crucified God. It is, the cross reveals and expresses who God really is. So I want to point out two very practical things that may be very obvious. One is... Jesus did not die alone on that hill. He died in the company of bad people. One whose heart turned to him and one whose didn't. According to Luke, in Matthew, we don't even have the example of turning. Jesus died in the company of bad people. He suffered the ultimate rejection and punishment that the Roman powers had to offer he did not die alone he died as he lived he chose to live in the company of sinners to the very end of bad people therefore the cross leads us to incarnational the way God lives in the world the cross leads us to incarnational Christian community do we have bad people among us do we have bad people that we've made room for in our lives in our churches do we choose to be with bad people so that's the first thing seems to me on Golgotha secondly His first act on the cross was to preach forgiveness. Famously, we know he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Here's something interesting. His forgiveness is so all-embracing, so total, that the very ones that did all this harm to him he not only forgave, but he made excuses for them. Oh, Papa, they, they just don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness even makes excuses for the other. One of my favorite contemplative writers, Henry Nouwen, said this in uh, Return of the Prodigal. Anybody ever read that book? Amazing book. He said this, Forgiveness is the well at the center of God's village. Isn't that good? That'll preach. (laughs) So that's looking at the issue of forgiveness at the cross. Second thing is reconciliation. Co-suffering, suffering with, and radical forgiveness are the foundations of reconciliation. We're going to look at this a lot more next week. But let me say this much. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 about the ministry of reconciliation, 1 Corinthians five nineteen and 20. We know this, but I'm going to read it out loud anyway. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. We just saw that, didn't we? And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Through Christ, God reconciled everything to himself. And we're going to talk a lot about that next week. He reconciled all things to himself. He wasn't selective as to who he was reconciling to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. That's Colossians 1.20. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. When we begin to truly enter into Christ on the cross, it must move us to be a people of reconciliation. It is the the direction of this recreated cosmos. Whenever we put up any walls, racial, economic, um, religious, whenever we put up any walls, we are not moving in the rhythm of this recreated cosmos. Because you see, until the cross, death was at work in the cosmos, right? In creation. But at the cross, recreation has begun. Everything's changed. And it's, it's, it, we must move in the direction of reconciliation. And I find that personally challenging sometimes. But I don't have a choice if I'm going to embrace the cross. Let's talk about another couple of things. Something I've taught on before, but this is what else is happening. There's forgiveness happening. There's reconciliation happening. But there is, on the cross, this complete self-emptying. And many of you know the word is kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S. It is a key, vital, when we really start to understand kenosis, the gospel comes into focus for us. Remember I told you last month when I taught about the Sabbath as resistance, I said that the spirit of mammon, more than being about money, it's about grasping. Remember I said that? And that's, that's the spirit of Egypt, that it grasps, it's seeking control, ultimately from fear of losing what it has, um, that uh, that's the spirit of mammon, that's the spirit of the world. The cross is the ultimate truth of how God has created the cosmos to work. Jesus took the place not only of suffering and forgiveness, but in this he emptied himself. And the classic passage, and I'll, ta- I'll take time to read all six verses. Philippians 2, 6-11. Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself that's the word kenosis emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave by looking like other men and by sharing in human nature he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross As a result, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and Father. This question hit me right between the eyes four or five years ago. Could it be that Christ on the cross is the highest and most perfect revelation Of God's glory. I think kenosis is the prime expression of God's nature, blessed are the poor in spirit, the lowly, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Kenosis is the way the kingdom works, kenotic love is who God is. This stuff, hold on to it because we're going to need it next week, okay? So there's a real paradox here, because the self-emptying Christ, and we prefer the, one writer, Richard Rohr, calls him touchdown Jesus, but the self-emptying Christ leads us paradoxically to a bigger gospel, a gospel that is not just for me, but for all of creation. The gospel is not that Jesus is just saving individuals and leaving the world as it is. The gospel declares a new reality, both demonstrated and won at the cross. Jesus is recreating the world. I know I keep saying that, but we've got to get this. A new heaven and a new earth built upon and established by Christ on the cross. This is a whole new axis for life, not built upon violence or grasping, mammon, or control, but an axis of love, which is marked by co-suffering, self-emptying, and radical forgiveness. The creation that was dying under the curse of death has now been called to life by this eternal, all-encompassing power as I've said, it reaches beyond the limits of time and space. Of the cross. God is restoring all things. It is an ever-advancing and eternal peace. True peace is built upon the truth of the cross. (laughs) You know, any peace that's achieved through violence or the threat of violence my army is bigger than yours or whatever isn't peace it's just a temporary cessation of hostilities and history has proved that to us for 5,000 years true peace is built upon the cross this alone is the power that will bring about God's purposes principalities and powers insist that truth is about power power enforced by violence or fear of violence. Violence is the organizing principle for all those who operate under the, the powers, the principalities and powers. The cross, however, declares the truth and demonstrates that violence is not ultimate truth. It's so easy for us to say we're putting aside violence until we get right into a corner and we get really threatened. We say, well, we tried everything else, and then we fight back. But the cross never fought back. If we're going to follow Christ, we must take up our cross of self-emptying, radical forgiveness, and follow him into meaningfully loving our enemies. I'm on the home stretch. You guys have done well to stay with it because there's a lot in here. Okay, so tonight we've only begun to enter into the infinite depths of this great mystery of the cross. Hopefully, tonight we've begun to see what took place at Christ's crucifixion with new eyes, maybe even a new heart. Next week, we're going to go deeper into what was accomplished at the cross. There's more I'd like to say about the cross, like right now, but I'm not going to. But let me leave you with two or three thoughts to think about until we gather next week and go deeper. Here's the first one. If the cross declares that violence is not ultimate truth, but self-giving love is, and if Jesus is the full revelation of the triune God, then God must be nonviolent. And if God is nonviolent, how can we accept any theory of salvation that is based on appeasing him through a violent act? So just think about that. Here's another one. What if Jesus? did not die to change the Father's mind about us? What if he came to change our minds about the Father? And the last thought I want to leave with you. What if the cross was not about a transaction involving the Father and the Son and us?
0: What if the cross yeah. is not transaction? Thanks for listening to another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app or by simply visiting impactnations.com slash podcast. And while you're at our website, check out that journey to Colombia. Thanks and have a great week.